uh, Genesis chapter 22 and have that open as we make our way through it today. Genesis 22. Our theme today is God will see to it. God will see to it. Well, I would imagine most of us here this morning have read this story in Genesis 22 many, many times in our lives. Even some of our very youngest boys and girls here today, you've probably heard this story before. You knew how it was going to end when I was reading it earlier. And yet, just as we do with our favourite places, favourite songs, favourite stories, we come back to this passage of Scripture time and again, and perhaps we see it in new ways, or we are impacted again by the drama of it, by the importance of it. One writer goes so far as to say that no other story in Genesis, indeed, he says, in the whole Old Testament, can match the sacrifice of Isaac for its haunting beauty and its theological depth. Tremendously important passage of scripture. And yet a passage that is easy to read. There's, there's no big or difficult words. It's easy to understand. But it's important and it's dramatic and it's a powerful passage nonetheless. There are still several chapters in Genesis that will deal with the life of Abraham. God willing will come to them in the next few weeks. But this is really the peak. This is the climax of the Abraham story. The chapter ties together all the themes of the story so far. Just as in chapter 12 when God first called Abraham. He calls him again here. And Abraham does not know what the end result of this call is going to be. Ties together as well the themes of covenant promise being passed down through Abraham's covenant son. And amid so much for us to to think about, just the the way this passage is written is is just remarkable. Um, The language and uh, even from a literary point of view, it's an incredible passage to study as I was able to do this week. But I want us just to focus our thoughts, hang our thoughts on on one key line in this story. And it comes in verse 8. Abraham's son Isaac suddenly asks his father, where is the animal that they're going to use for the sacrifice? And Abraham replies in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide. And the verb there in the Hebrew is actually the word for to see. One writer suggests a good translation would be God himself will see to it. God will see to it. It's remarkable that in God's providence we come to this passage on the same day that We'll also be studying in Philippians 4 verse 19 this evening, God willing. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us the same thing as we learned from the life of Abraham today. God will see to it. God will provide. So we want to think first of all today about where God provides. Where God provides because Genesis 22 shows us two places in particular that God loves to provide for his people's greatest needs. And the first place that God provides according to Genesis 22 is in the place of testing, the place of testing. If you look at Genesis 22 verse 1, uh, we the readers were immediately told what is really going on in this story. If you look at verse 1, it says after these things God tested Abraham. 
So we know immediately, no matter what else we're about to read in this story, there's something more happening here. God has a plan here. He's working to a purpose. He is testing Abraham's faith. So we know what's going on. But Abraham, of course, did not know what was going on. It's easy for us knowing how the story is going to end. Abraham did not know how the story was going to end. Think about him. Hearing these words in verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. And each of those phrases, it would have been like the, the knife in Abraham's heart twisting that little bit more. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The son he'd waited a hundred years for. The son of Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. The son that they had in their old age, who gave them, as we thought about last week, that, that joyful laughter. Him? Why now? What about all God's covenant promises repeated over and over again? Had, had Abraham not even tried to work around it and he had gone to Hagar and he had conceived Ishmael with Hagar and at one point he'd even said to God could, could Ishmael not just be my heir rather than waiting and waiting and waiting for a legitimate covenant son and then at last he comes and now after all that Abraham has been told to sacrifice him made absolutely no sense humanly speaking but how did Abraham respond with instant obedience. Look at verse 3. So Abraham arose early in the morning. No procrastinating. No excuse making. No rationalizing away the word of God. He rose early. And he obeyed immediately. And one writer pointed out. That had Abraham been around in our day. You know the kinds of questions. That the TV journalists would have been dying to ask him. Abraham. Talk us through, how did you feel? What was going through your mind, Abraham, when you, when you got that command? The Bible doesn't tell us how he felt. I mean, how do you think he felt as a loving father of only one son whom he adored with all his heart? But his feelings don't get in the way of his faithfulness. He obeyed. He submitted to the command of God. And this is God's way, friends, in the lives of all his people. Granted, none of us are in the unique position that Abraham was in, the patriarch, the, the, the literal embodiment of God's covenant promises in the Old Testament era. We're not, like, we're not quite in that situation. But we are Abraham's spiritual children. And we will face tests of our faith, tests which quite possibly make absolutely no sense from our limited finite perspective Ralph Davis says God is not always clear and it doesn't matter how much reformed theology you've read or even he says if you know personally some great theologian there will be times when you cannot make head nor tail of what God is doing at times it might not feel like what we are experiencing is necessary 
or helpful or good. It surely didn't feel like that for Abraham. And yet he stepped out in faith. Perhaps he thought about every time in the past that he had tried to do things his own way. And how pretty much every time it had been a mess. We've seen him twice try to lie about Sarah's identity to protect himself from the mess that that caused. Saw the mess that ensued by his time with Hagar. And yet God has been patient and God has kept providing. And perhaps on this occasion Abraham thought, you know what? Rather than make another mess, I'm just going to trust and obey He tells Isaac, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. It doesn't read particularly smoothly. And that's not just because of our particular English translation. It's not a smooth sentence in the Hebrew either. Because Abraham is emphasizing in the way that he says this. God, God alone will provide for himself the lamb. He provides, friends, in times of testing. Times when we have to leave our comfort zones and believe that our perplexing God is still our loving, sovereign, providing God. I was struck by something that the late Reverend Ted Donnelly said preaching in this passage. He said, we would like to have God's provision immediately. We'd like to have it stored up well in advance. We don't like living on the razor edge of daily trust. We forget the prayer Give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. We're used to providing for ourselves in this part of the world. Making sure that we have more than enough. And we get freaked out by headlines about supply chain problems in the supermarket. Times of testing come along for us to step out in faith. So that we might declare as Abraham did. God will see to it. God will provide So he provides in the place of testing, but he also provides in the place of worship. In the place of worship. The mountain to which God eventually leads Abraham is in the area of Moriah, Mount Moriah. And 2 Chronicles chapter 3 tells us that in fact hundreds and hundreds of years later, it was in this same place, Mount Moriah, near Jerusalem, that King Solomon would build the temple of God, the permanent place of sacrificial worship for the Israelites. And that was what was at the heart of the Israelites' worship, uh, the principle that sacrifice is required for sinners to come before God, that that we dare not come to God as we are. It's one of the the slogans sometimes that uh, churches come out with in our day and generation. Come just as you are. And of course, we invite anyone and everyone in whatever situation they're in to come to worship. But we dare not stay just as we are. We come to worship a God who is holy and righteous and good. And we are sinful and wicked and bad. And so a sacrifice is needed. And that's what Abraham was being taught here. And and that's what the Israelites were being taught. Those who would have been the first to hear this story and read this story. They were being taught the principle as they made their way towards the promised land of sacrifice being required. And yet, as we'll consider more in a moment, friends, God himself provides the very offering required. And we might say, friends, that this is the heart of our worship. This is why the place, the priority of worship should matter to us more than anything, <clears throat> more than anything else in our lives. 
Because we have a God who calls us to do it, to come to him and worship, but also a God who provides for us to worship him. God's command didn't make logical sense to Abraham when he first received it. As he sat in his tent, as he looked at Sarah and looked at Isaac and took in what he was being told to do by God, what possible good could come from sacrificing my only son? Likely it still didn't make sense at the foot of that mountain as they began to clamber up it. But once they arrived, once Abraham's faith had carried him right up to the place of worship, once the altar was ready, then God spoke and then God provided the ram in the thicket. And this is what we were thinking about with Psalm 73 Samus says in 73 verse 16, as he looked at the world around him with the ungodly going from strength to strength, not seemingly facing the difficulties that God's people face. Samus says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, he says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, until I went to the place of worship, then, he says, I discerned their end. See, there is perspective, there is clarity, there is reassurance provided in the place of worship. And of course, I'm not saying that Sabbath morning and Sabbath evening worship or personal worship or family worship, that just doing it zaps away your burdens and your perplexing circumstances. But friends, in the place of worship, God provides us with truth about himself. In the place of worship, he provides us with reminders of his promises. In the place of worship, we we stop looking at ourselves and we look at our glorious God and the saviour that he has provided for us. We come to the place of worship to praise the name of an eternal God, an unchanging God in a world that is full of stressful change. We come to the place of worship to meet with an all-knowing God And in doing so, we're confessing that we don't know everything and cannot provide for all of our own needs. But we have a God who can. So where does God provide? He provides in the place of testing and in the place of worship. So don't resist going to those places. Don't resent being in those places. Don't be afraid to walk through or to Places of testing or places of worship. They are the places, friends, where God will see to all your needs. Where God provides. Secondly, and more briefly, what God provides. What God provides. And we thought a little bit about this already, but to tease it out further, what God provides, friends, is ultimately a substitute. A substitute. Boys and girls, you know what a substitute is, especially if you like football or hockey or rugby. A substitute takes the place of someone else. Maybe a player gets injured or isn't playing very well. So the coach substitutes them, replaces them with someone else. What God provides for Abraham and for Isaac here is a substitute. It's interesting, I learned this week that in the Jewish tradition... Uh, sort of the, the rabbinical teaching passed down on this passage of scripture 
Genesis 22 is known as the Akedah. The Akedah. And that's a, a Hebrew word. It's the word that's used here in verse 9 when we read that Abraham bound Isaac. It's actually the only time in the Old Testament that this particular word in Hebrew is used, that he bound Isaac. And, and, and so remarkable is this passage in Jewish thought that that's how it's known. It's known as the binding. And by the way, that detail tells us something about Isaac's faith. If Isaac was old enough to take a three-day journey up a mountain with wood on his back, he was old enough to fight off a man who was over 100 years old who wanted to bind him to an altar. But Isaac didn't fight Abraham off. He submitted to his father. He was willingly bound to the altar of sacrifice. Isaac had faith as well, friends, that God would provide. But the tension gets stretched to breaking point. Verse 10, it's like slow motion in a movie in verse 10. As Abraham reaches out his hand, takes the knife, holds it up in the air. And then Abraham, Abraham, the angel of God calls to him once again, even as he's about to slaughter his son. And he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And then look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of or as a substitute for his son. The word son appears 10 times in the original language in this passage. The word burnt offering appears six times and three times God calls Isaac Abraham's only son. The son was perhaps what mattered more to Abraham than anything else in the world except obedience to God. But God provided a substitute and spared Abraham's son. And of course, reading this passage with New Testament eyes, it is impossible to miss all the signposts to the greater son the son who was sacrificed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac was Abraham's only beloved son. Jesus Christ was God the Father's only beloved son. Isaac carried wood on his back and he was bound to that wood on the altar. Jesus Christ, we're told in the Gospels, carried his own wooden cross to the place of execution and was then nailed to that cross. Isaac was a willing, submissive son, obedient to his father, and in a sense, innocent. He hadn't done anything that we that were told of to merit this kind of execution at all. Jesus Christ was willing and submissive to his heavenly father, entirely innocent of any sin. Abraham had to travel three days with his son to the place of sacrifice, all the time thinking to himself, my son is going to be taken from me. Jesus Christ was three days in the grave, his followers thinking the whole time, our master has been taken from us. Before on the third day, God provided resurrection and Jesus was restored to them. Abraham and Isaac came to the place of worship with no lamb to offer and needed God to give them the ram as their substitute. And similarly, friends, we have nothing that we can bring to God And we would deserve to die for our own sins except that he has provided the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Child of God, you've come to the place of worship this morning. Perhaps you've come in the midst of testing. Perhaps you're perplexed today and questioning God and not able to see what God is doing. But have you seen what he's already done for you at Calvary? Have you lifted up your eyes as Abraham did and and seen the substitute saviour provided for you? Just as Isaac escaped because of his substitute. If he's done that for you, do you not have faith that he can also provide whatever else you need today, tomorrow, in the year ahead? The story is told of Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, uh, reading Genesis 22 to his wife, Katie. And when he had finished, Katie declared, I do not believe it. God would not treat his son like that. And Luther replied, But Katie, he did. God didn't ask Abraham to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do. And of course, in the end, Abraham didn't have to do it. And God provided his son a substitute instead. Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And if God was willing to provide you with that, how will he not also graciously give you all things. Where God provides, he provides in the place of testing and in the place of worship. How God provides, he provides by means of a substitute saviour. And finally today, why God provides. Why God provides. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this And have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Here we see faith rewarded. Here's the assurance to us, friends, that obedience brings blessing. And as I said earlier, that's been the message of Genesis right back to Eden. That God promised Adam and Eve, obey and you'll be blessed. Disobey and they'll be cursed. The same message was preached to Noah in his day. The same message has been preached to Abraham throughout his life. And Abraham has believed that message. We were told back in Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he was justified by faith alone. But that faith, friends, displayed itself, evidenced itself in his obedience. That's why James 2.22 says of Abraham that faith was active along with his works, that it was completed by his works. Where would be any sign of faith if Abraham hadn't obeyed? We would have to doubt or question his profession of faith. But he did obey. And so here in verses 15 to 18, God repeats and builds upon the covenant promises that he had made to Abraham all those years before when he first called him to follow him, to bless him 
and make him a blessing to the world, to give him innumerable offspring, uh, which again we believe is fulfilled not just in the existence of the Jewish nation, but even more in the existence of the church. Paul says in Galatians 3 that we are Abraham's offspring if we share his faith. And here we see God promising to reward Abraham's faith, reassuring him again of the wonderful promises that he has. But we can go a little further here, friends, and we can say that ultimately the reason that God provided for Abraham in this way was for the glory of his own great name. It was to reward the faith of Abraham, but it was also for the glory of God's own great name. Yes, Abraham demonstrated tremendous faith and obedience. Yes, God here rewards that faith. But friends, ultimately God is always working, not just for our good, but for his own glory, for the glory of his own great name. And in a strange way, what might seem a strange way at first, I think this little list of names that you see right at the end of chapter 22 22, is intended to remind us of this. You might think this is a very unsatisfactory ending to such a dramatic chapter, this list of names in verses 21 to 24. Uh, We're being told here about Abraham's nephews being born to his brother Nahor. His brother Nahor has eight children by his wife Milcah, as well as four more children by his concubine Ruma. You might think, well, why do we need to know that? Well, some writers point out that in amongst the names of all these men, in verses 21 to 24, there's also the mention of one young woman, Rebecca, who, of course, is going to become a very important figure uh, later in the story. But I don't think this list of names is here just because of Rebecca. I think this list of names reminds us, friends, how fragile Abraham's household looked to the rest of the world. And of course, his household is the covenant household. His household is supposed to be God's household. It's through Abraham's household that all God's promises for the world will come to pass. So how does Abraham's household compare to his brother Nahor's? Looks pretty flimsy. Nahor, an unbeliever as far as we know, didn't come with Abraham to attach himself to the covenant promises. Nahor has 12 sons. Abraham has one son. Yes, he had Ishmael. Yes, he would have more sons when he remarried after Sarah's death. But Isaac is Abraham's one covenant son, his beloved son. And yet it took so long for Isaac to arrive and Isaac is all Abraham has and Abraham and Sarah are now extremely old. And meanwhile we realise here's his brother off in the world thriving with a full house. No worries about the legacy being passed on there. And friends that's often how we're made to feel as believers today in this world full of people who seem to be thriving whilst never repenting. Again, it's what we thought about in Psalm 73. Psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
What he's saying is that the believer can sometimes look at the world and think, well, they're absolutely fine. They're, 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 they don't have any problems. They're not having to suffer in the ways that believers might have to suffer. They celebrate their immoral sexuality. They pursue their interests. They never repent. And nothing seems to happen to them. And meanwhile, the church, the people of God, looks so small and so fragile and so weak. When you're tempted by those discouraging thoughts, friends, remember, God will see to it. God will provide for his people to keep going when and how he sees fit. He provided for Abraham and Mount Moriah. He's provided for you and I at Calvary. He has kept and is keeping all the promises that he made to Abraham. No matter how flimsy and fragile they seem to be, at one point they're dangling on the life of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old barren woman and a young single boy called Isaac. But he still kept them. And at one point too, friends, God's covenant promises were hanging on a cross, covered in blood and shame, sent into darkness and death. But he kept them there too. And today, the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's as innumerable, it's as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. And the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, does possess the gates of his enemies, just as God promised Abraham here. He is building his church, and the very gates of hell will not withstand the onslaught of Christ. So no matter how frail or fragile the people of God may look or feel, remember, friends, God will see to it. God will provide and God will get all the praise and all the glory. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, the substitute that God had provided. Have you lifted up your eyes and looked upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? And are you meeting him in the place of worship and in the place of testing, trusting in his promises and giving him the glory for all the good gifts that he has given and has promised to give to you? Amen.